0: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond.
1: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start off with our Monthly Roundup
0: of Prison Disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle.
1: On Monday, August 1st, three prisoners escaped from the Concordia Parish Correctional Facility in Faraday, Louisiana. One prisoner was recaptured the same day in Baton Rouge, and as of Monday, August 29th, the other prisoners have yet to be captured. A guard was arrested and charged with the escape. As it was reported, he knowingly confirmed an incorrect headcount of a prison dorm, which resulted in a delay of CPCF officials identifying missing inmates.
2: On August 1st, an altercation between prisoners and guards started at the Coxsackie Correctional Facility in New York, when guards caught a prisoner trying to take food back to his cell from the mess hall. According to the prison administration, When the encounter escalated and became violent, at least five more prisoners jumped in, leaving one sergeant and six guards injured. The melee was eventually subdued when more guards arrived on the scene. Authorities did not immediately give information about whether the prisoners involved were harmed.
1: On Thursday, August 4th, two prisoners attempted to escape Morgan County Jail in Decatur, Alabama. According to reports, the prisoners made a makeshift rope out of bedsheets, blankets, towels, and a water bottle, which they attempted to throw over a 30-foot wall in the recreation yard, but were stopped by guards. Both prisoners have been charged with first-degree escape. Perilous has tracked one escape and one escape attempt from this facility since June.
2: According to a letter shared with Perilous Chronicle by an outside support group that is in touch with the protesting detainees, a group of approximately 40 people detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement at Richwood Correctional Center conducted a peaceful protest by sitting in the yard on Thursday, August 4th, and again on August 23rd. According to the protesters, 10 armed guards responded to their peaceful protest with shields and guns, forcing them to return to their unit. The group says they are now facing repression, such as shackling, retaliatory transfers, and restriction of access to means of communication. The group explained the motivation for their action in a letter, which detailed the lack of communication and consideration of their release requests for up to three months after all required information was provided to ICE, and the lack of any accessibility and language options for those who speak, read, or write Russian, among other concerns. The group wrote, We want to note that each individual, each of these pain points may not be significant, but these problems combined may turn the detention system into torture. That is, people fleeing persecution and torture in their homeland end up facing the same thing, injustice, torture conditions, terrible stress, misunderstanding, and negligence but all of this is now happening in the country in which they hope to find refuge in the first place the group reports that there is no russian english dictionary or access to online or phone translation services to translate asylum applications into english as required under quick deadline to immigration court in removal proceedings The group also reports that there is no way for Russian speakers to communicate with their assigned ICE deportation officer who is the only point of contact with regard to these release applications as no officers speak or read or write Russian and there is no option for acrylic letters on the tablets kiosk to which detained individuals are directed if they wish to talk to their deportation officer.
1: Around 2 a.m. on Friday, August 5th, Four prisoners escaped by cutting a hole through the roof of Alcorn County Correctional Center in Corinth, Mississippi. One prisoner was recaptured early Saturday morning in Corinth near the Tennessee border. The other three prisoners were recaptured in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Three other people have been arrested and charged with aiding the
2: escape. On Thursday, August 11th, a disturbance broke out at the California Correctional Institution in Tehachapi, California. Although very few details have been made available, media reports refer to the event as a riot. Six prisoners were injured and transferred to the local hospital for treatment. Prison guards subdued the prisoners using chemical agents and less lethal foam rounds.
1: On Friday, August 12th, prisoners detained in the Orleans Justice Center refused to go on lockdown and refused staff from entering their pod. The uprising lasted for three days. As reported by It's Going Down, quote, after prisoners barricaded themselves inside their pod, one of 24 within the facility, prisoners issued both a set of demands and held makeshift signs visible to those on the street reading Help Us. While communicating to supporters and family members, who rallied outside the jail, end quote. Prior to the uprising, prisoners were on nearly 20 hours of lockdown due to staff shortages. During the uprising, prisoners reported that the facility was denying them water, food, and medicine, and also said that the water was turned off. Prisoners were communicating through the toilet system to coordinate with barricading the pods. IGD also reported that, according to local news, A similar demonstration occurred in a women's pod, but was resolved quickly. Sheriff Huston said that pepper spray was used on one inmate in that incident. On the evening of Sunday, August 14th, after prisoners began flooding the pod by triggering the sprinkler system, it was it was reported by the LDOC that the Louisiana Department of Corrections and the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office raided the barricaded pod removed and transported some prisoners to a DOC maximum security facility and stated they used, quote, best practices to de-escalate the situation, end quote. But they did not report what force or weapons were used during the raid. The Lens reported that beanbag rounds, flashbangs, and a stingball grenade were used, and that one prisoner was kicked in the face by a guard during the raid. The Lens also reported that five prisoners were taken to the hospital for, quote, non-life-threatening injuries. It's Going Down published the statement released by the prisoners during the uprising. Quote, We the people are tired of being treated in such an inhumane manner. It is nefarious the way your staff members continuously violate our due process and civil rights unsympathetically daily. Nonetheless, we are not on segregated, disciplinary, or extended lockdown to be thrown into our cells for 20 hours a day, or at any time the staff feel as such. The staff lets us out of our cells from 8 a.m. until 12 p.m. for the top tier, then 12 p.m. until 4 p.m. for the bottom tier, when half of us are unable to contact our relatives until after 5 p.m. once they return from work. We are demanding an immediate resolution. Washer, dryer, and kiosk replacements. Basketball replacement. Four books a month and the 20 photos a week restriction lifted. Mail to be delivered and if refused to be informed why. 30-minute visits put in place. Toiletries to be given weekly and on time. Proper medication and sick calls to be taken seriously. To be allowed recreation time from 8 a.m. until 10.30 p.m. No reading material should be denied. To be taken to court on the court-appointed date. Transportation has repeatedly not come for several inmates. A second TV. Remove the tint for verification of whom we are communicating with, i.e., warden or sheriff. End
2: quote. On Sunday, August 14th, 150 prisoners at the Monterey County Jail in Salinas, California ended their two-week hunger strike. According to the sheriff's office, the strike began on August 1st with more than 900 prisoners refusing meals prepared by the jail. The striking prisoners were joined by their loved ones outside to demand better medical care and food prices, longer socializing times, the reinstatement of COVID-19 protocols, and two rounds of clean clothes per week instead of one.
1: On August 18, 2022, at about 6.45 p.m., approximately 20 to 25 prisoners refused to return to their cells at Erie County Jail in Sandusky, Ohio. After threats of force from officers, prisoners slowly returned to their cells. Photos of the incident show prisoners covering their faces with t-shirts and other clothing in anticipation of the use of chemical weapons by the officers. Two prisoners who have been identified by officers as primary participants have been transferred to a different facility following the incident.
2: Prisoners at Rhode Island's only maximum security prison went on hunger strike on August 21st, according to advocates from Behind the Walls Committee. The strike comes after many prisoners in the facility passed out due to extremely high temperatures and poor ventilation during a recent heat wave. According to the Behind the Walls Committee, the prisoners are demanding 8.5 hours of recreation time per day, fans for each incarcerated person, expanded vocational programming, expanded access to the educational building, increased wages, the firing of Captain Walter Duffy, and a disciplinary process that will allow incarcerated people to present evidence and call witnesses. A representative from the Rhode Island Department of Corrections has refused to confirm the hunger strike.
1: On the evening of Monday, August 22nd, two prisoners detained in the Lincoln County Jail, quote, rushed a guard at the Lincoln County Jail in Davenport, Washington. According to reports, the guard's arm was broken during this rush. The prisoners then attacked another guard, and one prisoner escaped. He was recaptured the next day, Tuesday, August 23rd, south of Davenport.
2: On August 22nd, a group of detainees at the Ottawa County Jail in Oklahoma took over their unit Destroyed jail property and set multiple fires in an uprising, authorities say was sparked by a lack of access to communications. According to prison officials, interrupted communication with family and friends resulting from a broken phone kiosk set the detainees off, although their true motivations and the broader context in which the uprising occurred are unknown at this time. Law enforcement from multiple agencies responded to the jail to put down the uprising, which continued for several hours. After the uprising was initially subdued, law enforcement was called back to the prison after several prisoners started multiple trash fires inside the unit.
1: Sources inside confirmed to The Independent that a hunger strike has been ongoing since August 22nd at the latest inside Buffalo Federal Detention Facility in Batavia, New York. Immigrant detainees are striking after many days of 18-hour lockdowns in the facility.
2: On August 24th, two prisoners escaped from Chester County Jail in Henderson, Tennessee. It was reported that shortly after they stole a car, one prisoner was recaptured after pursuit by the Henderson Police Department after the escape. As of August 29th, the second prisoner has not been recaptured.
1: On August 30th, 2022, those of us housed in SCS-24 building will partake in a hunger strike due to our current living conditions. Inhumane conditions here consist of black mold, asbestos, and bug infestations. Presently, there's no air conditioning, running hot water, sprinklers, emergency call buttons, or safety instructions to notify where exits are located. The cell doors are 1900s outdated manual doors that lack any type of emergency release if the door is disabled. Due to there being no rec cages, offenders spend their one-hour rec time in full restraints. To read the striker's full statement, check out itsgoingdown.org. For
0: more information,
1: please go to
0: perilouschronicle.com. In celebration of over 300 consecutive weekly episodes of Kite Line, we're revisiting some features from our archive of shows. In this clip from episode 58, which aired in 2017, we return to the topic of incarceration's impact on families. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Ray Luke Levasseur. He's a former underground combatant with the United Freedom Front, which carried out a campaign of attacks from 1975 to 1984 against South African apartheid and the U.S. intervention in Central America. He spent 13 years in solitary confinement after his capture. This week, he shares with us his thoughts on the impact of incarceration on families, including his time as a parent, both in clandestinity and in prison. He talks about his own experiences, leading to insights about the larger issues facing many families, as millions of children are deprived of their parents in a society with record-high incarceration rates. Here's Ray.
3: When my partner and I went underground, we had three young children. In many ways, I mean it was a for the children and as a and for the as a family it was very comfortable, happy time. You know, we went to great lengths to try and keep our children safe and away from any actions that we were involved in. That said, it was like uh, and I've said this many times is is my really my only serious regret when I look back at my time underground the only thing I would have definitively done differently in terms of major decisions I made is that I wouldn't have had children with us underground. I was in Columbia Vietnam, There's any you know you look historically at resistance movements, and some of them you know have gone on for decades, and some of them have been huge, and in those kinds of situations, uh, there was you know a component part of this movement, this resistance, in which you could have a family, the children could, you could have liberated areas you had an extensive network that you could fall back on, that you could rely on. We didn't have that when we were underground. So I would not, uh, I don't recommend having children underground, which is, I guess, a tough thing to say. Or even even if you, you know, it's like, it goes back to decisions I had to make when I was underground involved really serious matters. And I didn't make those decisions based on emotion. I had a when last it lasted. You can have emotions as as part of it, but it's got to be subsumed to your more rational approach to things and I made a decision when my partner was pregnant. well, we'll have this kid on the underground. That was an emotional decision. You know I saw the baby born, didn't want to part with her. But when I saw the, uh, the, the dangers unfold, particularly in later years, I realized like, well, you know, we have no backup, we have no network to depend on, you know, we're really vulnerable. If something happens, both parents are here, you know, it's going to be a really nightmare situation. I think I, I think, you know, not like we're living in time with a big underground movement in this country, but it's that's an issue that, that, that you know based on time place and conditions, but time place and conditions that existed in those ten years I was underground didn't warrant having kids there. That said, once we were captured my first concern was we had a lot of concerns right away because they were kicking the shit out of us, and we were looking at you know spending the rest of our life in prison and all the rest of it. My first concern was my kids, and because we had no network per se, we did fall back on family, but our families didn't have much in the way of resources and 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 funds, and so, and we're talking about in our situation. There were three couples with nine kids, all young kids all, all under twelve. And um then once you're imprisoned and you're separated from your children, then you join <laughs> you joined at the hip with the parents, the the, the children and the parents uh, who are incarcerated and in their family on the street of all these many of people that we have imprisoned in this country. And the issues that we were confronted with weren't so different as what people uh, who are incarcerated in this country confront every day and their children, every day. And in our situation for the first two and a half, three years, my partner and I were both in prison. So the our three kids lost both their parents during that time. It's bad enough for you to have one parent in prison, but to have both is it's really tough. So then, you know you know, I was in some extreme isolation conditions. So you know, for years and years, I, I watched my three young daughters grow up on the other side of a plexi, plexiglass wall where we couldn't touch. We had to talk on phone to see the That's the kind of barrier that any parent and children has to deal with in terms of trying to survive the incarceration of one or both parents in both a physical, mental, and spiritual way to try and um, maintain those family ties and to try and maintain those relationships because everything in this gulag in this American prison system is designed to destroy the family. Everything about it Mm -hmm. from visiting rooms to, you know, Tons of rules and regulations to, like, the geography of this gulag, where you're 2,000 miles away from your family. Or you're doing time within a state like New York, which is, you know, the majority of prisoners in New York State prison are from the five boroughs in New York City. But where are those prisons located? Hundreds and hundreds of miles in upstate New York. So they, So, you know, looking at, in my case, long-term imprisonment and being extremely isolated— when I was at Marion, when I first got to Marion, we, we got one 10-minute call a month. I got three kids. I have a mother. I have a brother. You know, and I get one 10-minute call a month. Uh, that's not that's not conducive to maintaining a relationship with three three young children. And and when we can raise the money from supporters that allows those children to travel, out to say, out to a thousand miles out to Marion to visit, they can't even touch you they're going to talk to you on another phone on the other side of the glass. And, and um, so I think I, I, you know, the political prisoners in the sense of, I think, family and maintaining family relationships and all the challenges and barriers, like I said, it's a lot like what other prisoners have have to go through as well. And I think it's, there's a um, – I think there's a tendency with this issue and, and sometimes with other issues to, to say, well, if 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 you are a political prisoner, you know, you struggled against against apartheid or you struggled for Puerto Rican independence, you went to jail for your principles. Your principles were the bedrock on why you went to prison. You didn't do anything for personal gain or profit. You, and there's a tendency to think, well, that's enough to – enlighten any kid. Any kid's going to see that and say, hey, my dad fought, fought for Puerto Rican independence. In some cases, that's going to, that will be enough, especially if you have the kind of, you know, a political family <laughs> that's that's steeped in that history of whatever you're in prison for. Uh, but that's a gro- gross oversimplification in terms of trying to apply that to everybody. I know a lot of p- political prisoners and former political prisoners, uh, you know, most of them have had Problems of one kind or another, with their, uh, you know, difficulties in the relationship with their children at various stages, uh, growing up. But rather than emphasize my problems, which still vary from one year to another and and exist now to one degree just like they existed years ago, I think I think that the, the common issue that applies to anybody that's in prison. Who has children? It applies to all of us because the prison system—it it, it just it's a part of the—it's part of grinding you down. It's part of like stripping you of your humanity, you know, attacking your senses, all five—what you can see, what you can touch, what you can hear. I also think that those who suffer the most in this you I, mean, I i've seen I've seen men cry that after you know a visit with their children they couldn't touch, but those who cry the most in what we're talking about here dealing with the the irrational barriers the prison sets up between you know to separate and destroy families those who suffer most in this of uh, children sometimes when they're Real young, they don't understand. When you start to get old enough and they start to understand, they feel like they've been abandoned and, and and it doesn't necessarily make any difference what you're in prison for. You're not there. You're in a cage in a box somewhere. You know? And you know, ultimately with my, my children who are now grown and have children of their own was like I made a decision, but the decision impacted them. My decision was political. I wanted to go out and militantly shove it up apartheid. And I did everything I could to make that happen. And I'm not sorry I did. But that decision has a lot of consequences. One, I spent 20 years in prison for it. Number two, I still got two co-defendants in prison for these type of actions. But the other thing is the family suffers children suffer. It could be a lot better, and it should be a lot better in terms of what we do for families and children. One of the things I'm working on with IMPACT right now is if a fair chance to Band ban box bill. I mean, this will get a little bit away from this, but think about it. Anybody that's coming out of prison that had kids, you need a job. If you want to rebuild your family, if you want to rebuild your relationship or continue it if, uh, with your children, I mean, you've got to be able to make a living. You need a job. And right now, there are barriers against employment for the formerly incarcerated. What we're trying to do is simply r- remove one of those barriers or lower it through this band of boxing that we're, that we're doing in Maine. Recently, the the Maine Children's Alliance came out and supported our, our effort to band the box here, you know, lower a job discrimination and barriers against those formerly incarcerated. There was a study that was done here over a two-year period in Maine a few years ago that said that 8% of Maine's children, these are minor children, had at least one parent who was incarcerated during their childhood. Why do they support Bandit Box? Because they support families and they realize that, you know, employment discrimination is a against the formerly incarcerated is a serious barrier to reunification of families. So this is a small step, and I'm saying, well, you know, it's a, it's a it's a small step for a big problem. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the statistic goes along with that. One in Maine, you know, Maine is, is uh, I said, 8% of Maine's Maine children. That's a little above, it's the highest in New England, a little above national average. But when you extrapolate that in this research I looked at, 2.7 million minor children in this country have one of both parents in prison as we speak. So that's a lot of kids that... We're talking about trying to keep a family together as healthily as possible, but there are all these collateral issues, too, that go with it. This is really a challenge.
0: This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.